We're just continuing in our series, Your Heart and God's Law, Part 2. It's the Sermon on the Mount. This is the fifth week already. I'm kind of surprised. Fifth out of twelfth. This will take us all the way up right to Easter, and then after Easter, we're taking a different route. But this is a really important section of Scripture because this is... Uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, as I've heard it many ways, this is the constitution of God's kingdom. It contains the preamble, it has the Bill of Rights, and now overarching the constitution of what God's kingdom looks like. And so it's very important for us to know as Christians what God's kingdom looks like. But unfortunately, this is horribly, you know, it's, it's probably the most well-known piece of scripture, but it's also probably the least understood piece of scripture, and then it, consequently it is the least obeyed piece of scripture in regards to that too. So it all kind of fits, and it all kind of gels together in a sense, and how we're working and, <clears throat> you know, going through the sermon series. Hopefully it's all landed really well. Today is a, is a great tie-in section for the entirety of the first chapter because we're finishing the rest uh, of the interpretation of the law that Jesus is giving us, but it comes in a conclusion of fulfillment. And then there's the great, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, which immediately crushes everybody because there's a lot of uh, misconception and there's certainly no way that we as humans can very simply be perfect as God's perfect because we are broken sinners in need of a savior and we continue to see that as Jesus tells us how he's going to transform us and invite us into the kingdom by changing our hearts and then it's an outward pouring as opposed to how we've been taught many times that it's all about your good works and it's all about your deeds and if you do these things then God will have favor with you and that's not the case. And hopefully that's not what we've seen, and we certainly won't see that again today. So, dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Uh, thank you for allowing us to know you, to love you, and to serve you. Thank you for inviting us into your kingdom. Uh, but Lord, we need you in this moment. We need you to tune our hearts and our minds to your will. So bless us with the Holy Spirit within us, that uh, we may... Just very simply understand your word. All this I pray in our Lord and Savior Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, today's been, or this week has really been a long week. And it sounds like talking to a lot of you, it's been a pretty long week too. We might have to turn this down a little bit, Frank. There's a lot of feedback going on. And uh, <clears throat> because it's been such a long week, you know, my mind's been in a multitude of different places. And so... Uh, trying to bridge that all together and to gap it, there's, there's so much going on that falls entirely into what's going on in the scripture. And so praise be to God for that, very simply, because uh, if any of this is ever going to land you know, for you, it has to hit me and change me and strike me. And so in those capacities, that's where we're at today. And so this has been a really hard week. And so this even though it's not a really hard sermon, could be really hard, in a sense, So as, as we go. But the scripture text is Matthew chapter 5, um, verses 33 to 48. Yeah, it's on the back of the bulletin as well. So, Matthew chapter 5, 33 to 48. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. 
or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Amen. And that's hard, right? And so, just diving right in, the very first point, verse 33 to 37. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, remember that there's crowds, people who are there just to see what this Jesus guy is about. Maybe he can do something for me. And then there's disciples. And so Jesus is teaching to the disciples what the kingdom of God looks like in this capacity. And so this is him interpreting the law. We saw in verses 17 through 20 that Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. And in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, you must have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so to, for the people that were listening, to have a righteousness that exceeds, the, that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees is way, way complicated, right? Because how? These are the prestige, the most you know, righteous people that exist on the planet. But Jesus is showing why in this discourse and his interpretation of the law here. So we've seen that some of these come from the Ten Commandments, and we see that uh, a lot of these can also come from Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. That's the whole purpose of why we're reading some of these crazy scripture readings is because uh, they translate ideally and exactly into what Jesus is saying here from the teachings of the Old Testament. And so the first part here, oaths, you have heard that it was said of old, and you heard it in the past, it came from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. Uh, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you've sworn. Also, perhaps in the Ecclesiastes passage, that was there, uh, 1 through 7, but verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. And that's exactly what it says. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool. And so, obviously, he's tying and bridging all of these uh, together. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, but at the same time, Jesus does take an oath in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, the Apostle Paul takes many oaths, like when he writes the letter to the Romans or the Galatians or the Ephesians. And even God the Father swore an oath to Abraham, descendants as numerous as the stars, that he would take care of them. So are oaths generally bad? No. The point of, again, heart motives 
and, and where we're going with this and Jesus' kingdom, how it needs to be a transformational change from the inside out, you know, rather than just the works. Like, we all know what an oath is and that you should honor your word, right? Like, it's very simple. Unfortunately, we as sinners don't always honor our word or keep our word. Um, the yes is not a yes and the no is not a no, as we see in this. But what is the general character and display and demeanor of a Christian or one that is in Christ, who is a disciple and a follower of our Lord and Savior? And that's what he's getting to the heart at here, is that ultimately, as, as Christians, with the proper heart motives by uh, being in Christ and being one of God's, that, you would, that people would see your character and that your yes does mean yes and that your no does mean no. But so many times in life, we have to have oaths in order to complete and fulfill that promise that we're making to another person. Um, the simplest way is that uh, having to swear or make an oath portrays the weakness of your character and your word in life. It demonstrates that there's not enough weight in who you are as your own character to confirm your words. But think about it, how great would it be, and, and again, this is great because this will be God's way, where you can literally trust people <laughs> at face value and at their words. Like, is there anyone in here who's not been betrayed by someone's word? <laughs> like, no, is the answer. Because every one of us have been lied to or something to that effect. Or, you know, we have lied to other people just the same. We've over-promised and under-delivered. And so, um, as your pastor, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure where this fits in, but I need you to see how this all kind of ties together. And so I feel like a real story out of my real life would be very fitting and appropriate to tie in all of these things that Jesus is talking about. Even though we haven't talked about retaliation or loving your enemies, uh, very much so it, it all still ties in too. So my name is Eric Gross, and I am a sinner saved by grace. It's not something that I did or something that I earned. I still sin. I still hate. You know, there's still you know, envy. There's pride. There's all these uh, you know, ugly things that reside within me that even though I, I you know, if, if, if it could be possible, I push them aside. But it's not always that case, right? Because it is kind of ingrained who we are. So we need this transformative power. And so this thing about oaths is, is one that really cuts me to the core. Um, when I was born, my father was 61 and my mom was 37. A lot of people said that my grandparents raised me, <laughs> which kind of is the case because that's not the norm for today and there's 24 years apart, so on and so forth. But this whole promising that you're gonna do something and telling someone that, you can, that you're gonna do something cuts way back to that stage of my life. It is a pain that has been there forever. And it's one that kind of continually rears its ugly head. And when it does happen, it, for lack of a better description, it literally lights me on fire. It irritates me. And then I go to the hate section, which is the anger section, where you want to murder someone. Like, why on earth would you say you're going to do something and then not do it? that 
absolutely drives me nuts. And the only way I can think about it is that it stems all the way back from daddy issues. And then when you go forward, you get the angry part, like, okay, so someone did this to me, they overpromised, they underdelivered to me. So in retaliation, which is the next section, I'm going to do that exact same thing back to them. And where does this all come from other than heart motives and the brokenness of sin? If I was to bring it back, all the way back to childhood in a sense, you, you could hopefully maybe understand that it unfortunately falls on you as an individual. Not that it's your fault that they've overpromised and underdelivered to you, but because of the nature of sin and sin being primarily guilt and shame in our lives, it led to feelings of, he did this because I'm not good enough to be told uh, you know, a promise and have a promise kept to me in a sense. And so it cuts every single time because it's never officially been resolved. And when these things are never resolved, the pain continues to fester and grow, just like what was talked about in the anger section last week. When these things grow, you carry them forward to every single relationship that you have. Every single one, whether you realize it or not, what has happened to you in the past, if it is not resolved, will carry on with you and catch up to you in the present day. And so, if I was to fast forward many, many, many years, like 30 years in the future from my father to uh, another gentleman that I know, the exact same thing started happening, and I am literally lit on fire about it. And I'm at the point where I'm like, forget you, I don't need you, none of this matters anymore, we can just go our separate ways, forget it. But that's not the biblical way, and that's not God's way. And you've seen through all of these that reconciliation is very, very, very important. And so, even though I'm exceedingly frustrated with this gentleman, because his words are empty, they're meaningless to me, they're empty promises, I don't trust him, is the foundation of where I'm at in that relationship. But this is a brother in the Lord. This I am sure of, that this is a brother in the Lord. And... As God has reconciled me, you know, as Jesus has reconciled me, the sinner, with God the Father to restore that right and real relationship, we go back to that very first section of anger. And we see that if you're leaving an offering at the, the, the temple, but you know your brother has something against you, leave the temple. Go fix it, because reconciliation is really important in the kingdom of heaven. It is kind of the overarching theme. And if you know, we were to go look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Being born again, being created as a new creation in Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ. And then if we were to tie these into the Beatitudes and being a peacemaker and being able to show mercy to another human being, then we would see that, again, this is reconciliation too. So, I have legitimately, like, 
you know, cut this off. If, if I was to go anger, obviously it's grown to hate, it's festered, it's pooled, it's been a gigantic frustration, it's been a burden on my back, it has weighed me down, sin has, has guilted me, it has tried to shame me, it has tried to make me believe that it is my own fault, and that it's not this individual's fault, but I always remember that it takes two to tango. And again, this retaliation that I have done certainly hasn't made it any better of a situation. So, because it's gotten to be such a bad situation and because we don't talk, we don't communicate, we really haven't reconciled, I really have no desire to in my heart. Uh, even though like reconciliation is important, my heart is like, yeah, this is going to be a waste of time. This is going to be a joke. This isn't going to go anywhere. This person's not going to change. This isn't, you know, nothing's going to, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to happen. But that's not the case either because I know that Jesus changed my life and I know that reconciliation is important to God. So it's gotten to the point where now, in order for us to communicate, we have to have a mediator. And praise be to God that there has been a mediator within our lives. And if any of you have struggles, like a mediator, like there's so many ways we could talk about this right now. Like Jesus is our mediator with God. He's our mediator for a lot of things. But if you need, like if you can't communicate with each other, then you need a mediator. So maybe that's in the form of a counselor or a therapist or something to that effect in order for you two to actually be able to communicate with one another again. But again, you can see the wickedness of the heart because I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm condemning it before I even tried it. Very simply because I'm like, there's no way this person's going to change. There's no way this is going to happen. They're just full of empty promises and lies and all these terrible things. And certainly they're not a good person and I should just go my own separate way from them. Right? It just makes sense. But in this, this oaths and retaliation and... You know, you see the anger. Um, in, in essence, because of these frustrations too, even though this is kind of allegory and perhaps a little bit of a stretch, but it's become adultery because I've gone elsewhere to find and fill the needs of what I should have been getting all along in the sense, right? And then to even allegorize it even further, like there is a legit divorce and a separating of this friendship and this brotherhood and this bond all because of sin. And I'm like, man, what a mess this is. And who wants to go through this kind of mess? But Jesus, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, this is worth fighting for. Do not give up. And so having that mediator has encouraged me to reconcile these differences and these challenges within our lives. But you can see how your words have absolute meaning. You know, one thing that I've had to explain is that, you know, the, the whole texting phenomenon, the whole email phenomenon, you know, social media, this, that, and the other. If I text you and send you a question, and I might feel it's an important question and it's worthy of a response, but eight days later you still have not given me any type of response, tell me what kind of message have you just sent me without sending me a message? 
And that's what's the hardest thing, I think, for so many people to understand. Like, they're thinking, oh, this isn't that big a deal, blah, blah, blah. But it's a big deal to you. And so, again, uncommunicated expectations, you know, all these heart motives, all these things that are going on within this capacity of even just this section of six antithesis of the Sermon on the Mount and interpretation of the law, you can see how wicked and how bent it has become. Because not only have we done this to each other, then it spreads to other people as well. And that just can't be. That can't be the right way. That can't be how we conduct ourselves. And so when I read this, I am so excited about this because there will be a day where it is exactly like this in Scripture. Where I can go up to anybody and intrinsically know that they are trustworthy and responsible and respectable and their character exceeds you know, my own expectations in that capacity. But that doesn't exist here. And in order to understand what it's going to be like there, we have to fight for what it's like here, in a sense. And so these capacities of, of just very simply oaths, you know, your word, your word always have meaning. And even as I just said in that text, even when you don't use words sometimes, it has meaning. Like, if you just don't respond, you're telling me that ultimately you just don't care and it's not that important to you. So please, let's... I don't want to give it as, as legalism or anything, but this whole, like, if you say you're going to do something, let's do it. If you don't want to do it, let's just admit you don't want to do it. Very simply, yes be yes, no be no. And that's exactly what, what Jesus has done. And we see, again, these examples throughout all of Scripture, let alone just the Gospel of Matthew, of Jesus doing what he says he was going to do and done what he says he's done. And so let your yes be yes and your no be no. The Apostle James talks about it too. Paul talks about it. Everyone talks about it because it's a really important thing. And this stems all from your character. And so the brokenness of words and oaths are important. And your words most definitely always have meaning. And hopefully in that illustration, even though it's kind of all over the place, you see how wayward a heart can be just by words and how it can spread not just in that relationship, but to other relationships, into the bigger picture, until it goes before you in everything that you do. And you don't want that sin to go before you in everything you do. You want Christ to go before you in everything that you do. But you will measure other people based on what someone else has done to you in the past. And it is absolutely wrong. And it is worth fighting for to reconcile. And it is worth getting that pain out <coughs> from, from underneath you so that it doesn't fester, so that it doesn't continue to grow, so that that anger doesn't feel that hate, doesn't feel that fire uh, that just gets so wayward and, and just makes you do things that you know you shouldn't do. It actually turns you into someone that you're very angry against, and then that's when guilt and shame comes back into play, and that's when you start feeling like a terrible human being, and that was never the case. And so to go stemming back from all those issues that have never been resolved and to see how it 
plays out and then to see how it's even done. I hope that we can find a way to resolve it and move forward with our lives and reconcile. Like nobody's saying you have to be best friends, but you need to understand where you're coming from. And so sometimes it's important to have a mediator. And so just like this, it's very important for us to have a mediator with our God. And that is in the person of Christ who has brought us peace with God through his atoning sacrifice. Point two, verses 38 to 42. Two wrongs don't make it right. <laughs> I kind of just filled that in a little bit with that analogy and that story too. Um, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. So, you have heard it said. And so, it is true. The Bible does say eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This isn't a farce or a lie or anything like that. The problem is, is man's interpretation and his constant twisting of Scripture and throwing heavy weights on other people. This whole eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing was in essence to limit what the civil government could have as a punishment for someone who has committed a sin in God's nation of Israel. Like, you want the punishment to fit the crime. If you have children, and your children behave poorly on a technological device, you would take that technological device away. If your children were behaving poorly on a technological advice, would you, you know, give them a different type of punishment other than taking away the, the issue that it is in itself? And so, very simply, like, if, if you stole, then there had to be something that uh, matches that line, too. It was a limiting sense. Like, if you stole something, the punishment should not be death, right? If you lied to someone, should the punishment be death? No. So that's why I say it was, it was a limit. That, that's why it was enforced all the way back in Leviticus for the nation of Israel. Now, because of man's twisting, it has become an obligation in personal relationships that if you do that to me, I do that to you. And that's where we've gone wrong again. And again, going back to that story a little bit, like if you're going to lie, you're going to not you know, pay attention, you're not going to you know, do what you say you're going to do, why am I going to do what I say I'm going to do? Like it just doesn't make any sense, right? Like, but that's how the heart and the mind works in a sense. It's, it doesn't, it's not just. In fact, the heart is the most deceitful thing above all things. It's wicked. And you can see that, that it's wicked. And the fact that I'm going to retaliate, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you back in some weird capacity. So, Jesus says, but I say to you, you know, um, do not resist the one who is evil. Now that's confusing in itself, as if the one who is evil being the devil, you should not resist the devil. But, again, in, in the capacity of this, uh, we see people, and if I can explain it simply, to live generously among all people. You see verse 39, verse 40, verse 41, and 42. Those are the application points that Jesus makes regarding the um, retaliation. And they deal in different spheres of influence, if you will. Verse 39, uh, the backhand, that if someone slaps you on the right cheek, 
that was a form of public humiliation and disgrace and defamation, if you will. It affronts the dignity and the honor of the person. And so this is the first thing that as people, we, there will be some type of uh, dignity and honor. I'm sure, as in the anger that we have talked about, that you have name-called other people. You have tried to defame them. You have been angry enough to, to want to murder them in your heart because we have a murderer's heart. You see in verse 40, also, if anyone sue you, take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. Here's what's so shocking about that statement. We don't, we don't actually see that. But your, your cloak was actually, like, legally, you could never get rid of your cloak. No one could take your cloak from you. So Jesus is saying, if they want your tunic, give them your cloak, too. And, and you were like, what? That makes no absolute sense. But there's the legal implications in this section. If you go on to the, to the next section, the military implications, being forced to walk. If someone forces you to walk a mile, go with them, too. Culturally, at that time, um, you know, like the, the Persian male people, like any government entity as well as a military entity, um, you know, perhaps the, the easiest way is Simon of Cyrene having to carry Jesus' cross. Like the soldier said, you, carry the cross. And what did he have to do? He had to carry the cross. That was the type of, of role that's out there. And ultimately, these all have to do with service. But you see verse 42, in essence, we're kind of dealing with uncomfortable people that we don't necessarily know. And we're taught to judge others or you know, discernment, use all these different things. But again, Jesus in this is talking about ways to serve people and to show them that you are indeed different. That you are comfortable enough in yourself and who you are and your identity in Christ that you would not seek these legal ramifications or implications. It's not that we, we don't do these things or to abandon these things because there are times and situations. And it's just like Jesus says, don't make an oath but he's made an oath. Like there's, there's times and situations. He's not condemning any of these, but he's rightly interpreting all of these. And this is all in the theme of generosity and to live generously without question, to be able to help others, to be confident enough in who Christ is and what he's done and that he has your best interests in mind, that you won't need to publicly humiliate someone per se, when they publicly humiliate you. You won't need to legally sue someone when they you know, sue you first and back. That you won't need to fight back from military uh, implications and obligations. And that those people who may not need help are still worthy of help, regardless of what situation uh, that they're at. And so two wrongs really don't make a right. And you can see that your heart in these matters are immediately going to go towards the, the natural human implications to sue back, to publicly humiliate back, to forcibly force someone to do something that they don't want to back if it's been done to you, and then you know to help others who don't necessarily need help. And of course, there's many dangers within this, and, and you can't generalize because everything is a situation-by-situation situation basis, because every human being on the planet is different. But we can see that 
living generously in Christ and understanding uh, that we are called to be servants and that this world is not ultimately about our own wants and needs and desires, that we can live freely for Christ and have that freedom that we also desperately long for, but what sin doesn't let us have because we're drowning in our own guilt and shame from not necessarily our own actions, but sometimes the actions from other people in our lives. And so moving quickly to the third point, because I want to encapsulate all six of these for you again so that you can see where the Beatitudes and these uh, antithesis uh, all come in our understanding of what God's kingdom looks like. But we see this, love your enemies. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I want to be very clear with you. The Bible does not say hate your enemy. God hates sin, but he does not hate people. Okay? Very simply, God does not hate people. So love your neighbors everywhere. You know, in Leviticus it was there, in... Um, Matthew was there uh, in another spot in Matthew throughout the whole Bible. Okay, it's it, absolutely there, and we see that in many places. But hate your enemy is never stated in Scripture. It was, again, the obvious man made antithesis that, you know, you want to love your neighbor, but, you know, hate your enemy. That's pretty normal. The world teaches us that, right? And so that's exactly what the Pharisees and scribes at this time were teaching them. But he's like, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And isn't that fascinating in itself? So, going back to the very first antithesis on anger. It all stems around reconciliation, but more so in the grand scheme of what we're talking about in loving your enemies, you have to see where God stands in this and preserves the love of God that he has for all human beings. Okay? Now, if we were to go back to Romans, that Christ died at the right time, um, and that while we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. So while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So you can see very briefly about the enemies and that God indeed loves his enemies because we as human beings, as sinful creatures, all stand at enmity with God. We stand opposed to one another. We don't believe in his way, in his rule, in his authority, in his law. We believe in our own way, our own authority, our own rules, and our own laws. Sure, we have governmental laws, but those are just suggestions, right? Just suggestions on how to live your life. Like, I live my life how I want to live my life. You know, maybe it's like Frank Sinatra. I did it my way, right? And that's how we lived our lives, and that's how we continue to live our lives. But, again, Jesus says to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that is a huge, gigantic challenge for us who are so in love with ourselves that, you know, to love others is... Are they like me? You know, are they, are they going to be cool? Are they not going to be cool? No. The grander scheme of things is that God loves all of his creation. And in turn, we will be changing to love 
all of God's creation in everything that we do. Like when we see people, we don't see, oh, that guy's just a jerk. And, you know, everybody knows the town troll, right? You know, like the people who's, you know, especially living in a smaller town, there's people who have labels and names and this, that, and the other, and they're not really worthy of love. They're just, they're just jerks and this, that, and the other. They might be misunderstood, but I don't really care. There's not much in it for me, right? And that's just kind of how the heart works in a sense because again it's all about us and, and our own focus and so we see the application here and so this is the easiest way to see it verse 45 um, so that you may be the sons of your father who's in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust and so we describe this as common grace Every human being on this planet has common grace. Even people who are vehemently angry and absolutely hate God, God still loves them enough to give them food to eat, air to breathe, finances to you know, purchase things, the ability to work, you know, sight, sound, all that. All these things can, of course, be challenged, but understand, of course, that God has given us everything. The only fact that the world is here is because God loves. Okay? The only fact anyone can know and have a right and real relationship with the Creator of heaven and earth is because God loves. And He loved so much that He sent His only Son. So, then... We go to the next section, verse 46 and 47. So you see that common grace extends to all life, but verse 46 and 47, you have to understand that His love extends past human boundaries and loves all people, even those who reject Him. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? That doesn't make your love any unique or any different. If you find a group, like you find you know, your, your group that you belong to and you all end up loving each other and you know, have fun because you have things in common, like, again, where's, where's the challenge in that? Like you're, you're all here for sewing and you all love sewing, so let's sew together, right? Like, and we love each other because we're all sewers. Because sewing was an art that died years ago. And the fact that there's people that still sew today is a great thing. So we love each other because we all sew. There's no challenge in sewing and loving people who sew like you sew, right? But if you love someone who not only doesn't sew, but is vehemently angry against those who do sew, then... <laughs> right? It's, it's a weird analogy. It's what came to mind. <laughs> then, obviously, your love is different, right? Like, how can you love this person that hates sewing? I love sewing so much, I gave my life to sewing. But this guy hates sewing so much that anything that I sew, he cuts up. <laughs> Again, you can, see, you can see the balance and the difference of love and transcended groups. Um, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? You know, do not tax collectors do the same? Do not even Gentiles do the same? And that's, that is the fact of life. But again, this love of God and the love that will continue to grow in you will change you to the sense that all people are worthy of love. All people are worthy of dignity. All people are worthy of respect because they're created in the image of God. And because my Heavenly Father loves them, 
I in turn love them as his son or daughter and seek to reconcile that relationship with them, even though they're big jerks and cut up my sewing crafts. Like, I can still love them for who they are and, you know, perhaps we can come to a mutual agreement while they're, where they will stop cutting what I sew. <laughs> I don't know, though, because my heart's like, why bother? Why, you know, they're just going to keep cutting what, they, what I sew, so why even bother reconciling? Again, it's, it's worth the fight. It's worth the challenge in each and every situation and circumstance of, of your life and, and where you're going. And so this, verse 48, this is probably the most important verse out of the last uh, verse 21 through 48. Uh, be perfect. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so, understand that this is a threefold statement. Understand first and foremost that this is indeed a command. It is rather an unachievable command because there is no such thing as perfection this side of heaven. Make no mistake about it. But it's also a promise. It's a promise that someday we will be perfect with God in heaven. And it's a statement of hope so that when times are rough in this life, which they always are, there's seasons of joy, there's seasons of pain and suffering, and then there's all kinds of seasons in between. And so where does our hope lie? Does our hope lie in our own works? Or does our hope lie in the works of Jesus and God the Father to bring us new life, to bring us an opportunity to know Him, to love Him, to serve Him, and to be a part of His kingdom? And so, you know, we see that scripture in Matthew 19, the, the parable of the rich young man, and, and, and Jesus says to him in verse 21, If you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. And so what happens to the rich young man? He goes away sorrowful, very simply because he had great possessions. He was in love with the world and what he had, right? And so let's be real, too. If that rich young ruler was honest with himself, he did not keep the law as Christ has laid out the law for us in this capacity either. I doubt he has not murdered and not hated someone for something that they've done in their lives. I am confident that he has adulterized too. He has thought of either men or women inappropriately. He has done all of these things. He's probably broken an oath. I know I have too. Even though I tell you that it drives me nuts and it literally lights me on fire, that it still happens to even the best of us. That it, even though I don't find it to be intentional, it happens. And, and it's not my intention, and it's just really sad and unfortunate, but that's the brokenness of sin and the nature of human beings. And so we see that this overall teachings of, of, of perfect have to come from somewhere else other than us. It has to, because you cannot earn your own righteousness. I don't know how, even at the present moment, these things in my heart, I can do enough good deeds to counteract the bad deeds that continually happen in my heart on a day-to-day, minute-to-minute basis. Because 
depending on whatever situation or circumstance, slaps me in the face at that moment in time, my heart and emotions could go wayward and in a lot of different directions. And so we see that there's that ultimate need for a savior, that there's that need for that righteousness that's not my own, because I don't think I can muster my own righteousness by any stretch of the imagination. Um, or at least in the capacity that Christ would require to be a part of his kingdom or a part of his system. So let's look at it as an overarching whole real quick. There's six antithesis here, right? There's the anger, there's adultery, there's divorce, there's oaths, there's retaliation, and then there's loving your enemies as yourself. And so murder, talking about our nurturing relationships, right? We talk about adultery in oneness and purity of marriage. We talk about divorce, the marriage sanctity, the holiness of God and his relationship with his church. Because marriage was originally designed by God, for God, to show his relationship that he has with his people. But then, of course, we change it and make it our own, right? And we see oaths, we see trust, and we see transparent honesty. We see eye for an eye and opportunities for servanthood and ways in which that we can live and share this life of Christ with others, even in those dark and those bad situations. And then we see love and hate, which is that unconditional commitment to God and reconciliation to all for his purpose and his plan in life. And so uh, Michael Wilkins a theologian and another pastor was part of an NIV application commentary series. And he kind of broke these things down into these ways, and I just want to share them with you real quick. <clears throat> so think about these in regards to the antithesis that we just talked about, those six things, okay? True disciples not only avoid murder, but are transformed so that they do not strip away the personhood and identity of others through anger or defamation. And they continually produce reconciliation in offended relationships. So that's verse 21 through 26, the very first part. The second part, dealing with adultery. True disciples not only shun physical acts of adultery, but are so completely committed to God's purpose for marriage that they have eyes and hands for one spouse only. Thus, discipline every thought and action to be singly focused on the spouse. True disciples, this third section, not only respect the purity of marriage, but hold to God's values and design for marriage. It's permanence and it's sanctity for marriage. True disciples do not need to give oaths in order to confirm their trustworthiness because their faithful lives repeatedly confirm the reliability of their words. True disciples do not or are so secure this one's really important because this is one that I know I even struggle with. True disciples are so secure in their transformed kingdom identity that when they are wronged, they do not simply adhere to legal retribution, but use every opportunity to serve others, both good and evil people, 
so that the reality of God's grace in their lives woos those other people to the kingdom of heaven. That one fascinates me, personally, to think that that is the way that it is and that that one we're going to, that we're so secure in who we are in Christ that when someone badmouths us or blasphemes us or drags us through the mud or any of those things that we don't need to retaliate because we know and are confident enough in who we are as human beings in Christ that we can understand their sin and show them mercy and forgiveness for their sin. Not to let it go unknown, but to confront them on it and, of course, let them know. But, yeah, that, that's a beautiful expression. That's 38 to 42 in this. The retaliation. Verses 43 to 47. True disciples not only love what God loves and hates what God hates, but they have the renewed heart of God that enables them to love the world of sinners for whom Jesus will eventually give his life. And we see that. And then lastly, this verse 48, climactically, true disciples have experienced the powerfully life-changing presence of the kingdom of heaven in such a way that their progressive transformation into the image of Jesus, again, sanctification, being made holy, being changed into Christ's likeness, secures their progressive growth into the very perfection of God the Father. And that is a beautiful thing. Now, to take this even one more step further, because you need to see how the Beatitudes tie in with this, and you see, again, the fulfillment of the law. Um, you know, again, if this is the Constitution, the uh, Beatitudes are the preamble, and then the Bill of Rights are the sixth antithesis, or the law that, that helps it, and, and provide reason and a way for us to become obedient to the law, in a sense. Because, again, on my own, there's no way I could do any of this, by far. Like, I might have a good moment here or there, but all in all, like, the heart is wicked and evil, by far. So, to tie it in, the poor in spirit, going back to the first beatitude, these people do not think more highly of themselves than they should. So they will not be inappropriately angry with or defame another person, which is verse 21 to 26. So you see the first beatitude matched up with the first bit of law that's in there regarding anger and frustration. And then you go on to the second beatitude. Those who mourn over the sinfulness of the world will have an eternal perspective on relationship that will prevent them from lusting for a person other than their spouse. So that's the second one. You see the second beatitude matching up with the second antithesis regarding scriptures. We see in verse 5, those who are meek do not impose their will on others, so they will understand and submit to God's purpose for marriage. Verse 31 and 32. Both physically and spiritually. And we see that. Again, so the third beatitude matching up with the third antithesis regarding the law. Like, I don't know if God designed it this way, but man, it is impressive how these line up. Like, praise the Lord for His Word and His Scripture and, and where we're going by far. So, the next one. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, verse 6, do not need an oath to vouch for their honesty, but will always speak the truth. 
Why? Because they hunger and they thirst for that which is righteous. And they are never quelled here on earth seeking that righteousness. So they will never lie. They will never break their oath. So, okay. The next one, uh, the merciful in verse 7, they don't retaliate because they have been shown mercy and in turn will give mercy to other people. That makes absolute perfect sense to me. Like That is exactly how we're able to show mercy in the first place. And praise be to God that He's changed us with His Holy Spirit and has shown us that we indeed have not received the punishment we deserve. So maybe we can show that kindness to other people. That's the kind of life changing that Jesus is talking about. Now, the pure in heart, verse 8, uh, they will love both friend and foe because God loves all of His creation and there is beauty in everything. So verse 43 to 47, right? Exactly what we talked about in loving your enemies. So the peacemakers, uh, this kind of fits in between in verse 44 and 45. The peacemakers in verse 9 are sons of God and sons of their Father as they learn to love as their Father loves and to seek reconciliation as their Father loves. And that's exactly what a peacemaker is. You follow... Everything. And then lastly, those who are persecuted because of righteousness, verse 10, have confirmed entry into the kingdom of heaven through the righteous grace and gift of God in Christ through the promise to be transformed by the Holy Spirit into the perfection of the Father Himself. And so all in all, we see the, these things. And we see this fulfillment in Christ. And we know from other Scripture the blessing of the Holy Spirit in our lives to sanctify us, to change us, to make us holy. That if God has granted us the ability to repent, the ability to confess that He is Lord, the ability to have contrition in our hearts, a sorrowful nature that we would mourn over sin and mourn over being poor in spirit and that we will convert from our ways and then believe Him that He has done what He said He's done. And so just praise be to God. And this is super, super exciting because this is where we're going. And this is what we're doing for eternity. So we might have these struggles right now in life, but our great hope is in Christ and in His future kingdom glory. And we see this fulfillment and we can acknowledge this as spiritual truth based on the Gospel and based on what Jesus has done in the atoning sacrifice on the cross for us, living that sinful life or that, that perfect life without sin in the flesh, which is something that we cannot do. And so praise be to God for His hope Praise be to God for the promises. Praise be to God for the transformative nature of our lives as His church is being, is being part of His kingdom. And praise God for the redemptive heart, the being bought back from the slavery of sin so that we might actually live in righteousness. And so we know what to look for because of this. We know where we're going because of this and we know how to get there because of the small section of the Sermon on the Mount. So, but praise be to God for Jesus in capacity of all of these. So, Dear Heavenly Father, just thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this Sermon on the Mount that uh, gives us this hope and the strength and the peace uh, in our lives that we may be able to withstand 
the schemes of the devil and, and hold strong. And so, Lord, uh, as sinners and as broken human beings, uh, we see so much heart waywardness amongst the oaths and retaliation and just adultery and anger and frustration and, and all these capacities in our lives, uh, Lord, that you just continue to work through these pain in our lives, that we can be bold and we can be confident that we are indeed yours and that our lives are not measured by what other people measure it as, but by what you measure it as, and that you indeed love us, and you care for us, and you have blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. So continue to pour these truths on our hearts and our minds as this week goes on, that we may continue to be the salt and the light and stand firm and confident, yet meek in your kingdom. All this I pray in our Lord and Savior Jesus' name.